This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Well, we're to the section in Genesis that is, uh, concerns the flood account and the story of uh, Noah. So uh, we're going to break this. Uh, we've got a lot of scripture to read today, but we're going to break this into two weeks. So I'm going to cover the first part of the Noah story today, and we'll recover the, the second part uh, next week. Well, last year, I think it was, I didn't really track it, uh, but last year uh, a movie came out, and uh, it was about Noah. And uh, I didn't see this movie. I saw, cl- I saw clips of it. Uh, but before the movie even came out, I'm not a prophet, but I knew two things would happen. And they happened because they always happen. Here are the two things that happen whenever a movie comes out that has any kind of a biblical uh, sense to it or story to it at all. Two things always happen. Here's the first thing that happened uh, was that the, the, from what I read, the, the plot of the movie veered off from the biblical account. So it wasn't entirely uh, biblically accurate. The, the section I saw uh, had rock people. It had r- not like rock, but uh, <laughs> rocks that looked like transformers, and they turned into big like transformer people. Um, so these rocks more than meets the eye, and they became these uh, these transforming things. And so uh, that's pretty much not in the Bible. And uh, so the the two things are that one, when Hollywood makes a movie about the Bible, it will. Uh, veer in some detail, typically, from the biblical account. Here's the second thing that I knew would happen and always does happen, is that Christians will be shocked, and Christians will be uh, vocally critical, and it will be for the evangelical conservative church a great, cranky, get-off-my-lawn type of a moment where we just represent love wonderfully to everyone. (laughs) And uh, that's exactly what happened. And the sad thing is is that as the church, I've been thinking a lot, I'm going to teach on this, I've been thinking a lot about how we relate to culture, and we waste our outrage. I mean, that is not a place to spend outrage at all, but we do. And so on social media, we're critical, and, and all of these kinds of things. And in the church, we are at our worst when we are expecting unbelievers to act like Christians. That's when we are at our worst, when we're expecting the world to be who God calls the church to be. So we want people who are not believers, I'm assuming, I don't know this, but I'm assuming the people that wrote the script, produced the movie, uh, do not fear the Lord and do not believe probably that the account is even historical and do not believe that the Bible is true. So why in the world would we have any expectation that they would produce a film that would be biblically accurate? They're not producing material for your Sunday school class. They are producing something that will get people's seats in the seats to sell tickets and rock people sell tickets better than what we're about to read probably so it's a wasted outrage when we are worried that the world doesn't get it when we're all upset that the producers of the movie don't get the story here's my concern and my question do we get the story do we get the story do you know the story of the 10 uh, the not the same the noah the story of noah Do we even know the purpose of the story? Do we get, when we read this today, do we understand what the story is about? See, my concern is that I get the story, not that the world gets, that they understand it. A much greater concern is do I get it? And I don't think we do. 
I don't think we understand the darkness of the story because we've made it a children's story. For us, it is a children's story. It rained and poured for 40 daisies, daisies. That's the wrath of God. And we're doing this. Now, I'm not condemning the song. I sang the song with my kids. It's okay to sing the song. I'm not condemning the song. But that's not the attitude. When we read this today, nobody's dancing and singing 40 daisies, daisies. It's not about an archy, archy. It's about the condemning judgment of God against his creation. And his heart is broken that he's having to judge people that have corrupted an entire world. I don't, I don't think we get it. See, when we tell the story with a felt board, here's how we tell it. Noah is the hero. It's a story about Noah, and it's a story about cute animals, and it's a story about a boat, and it's a story about a storm, and Noah is the center of the storm. So we're worried that the producers of Noah didn't get it, of the movie, and I wonder if we get it. Like, for instance... Would you be aware that there's nowhere in the story that people are mocking Noah for building the ark? That's not in the Bible. Would you be aware that Noah, in the account that we're about to read, it does not tell us that his sons helped him build the boat. Probably they did. But he may have hired those so-called mocking people to build the boat. We don't know. It doesn't say. The, the traditions that we have around the story. Noah calls other people, repent, which he probably did, but repent, it's not in the Bible, but there's places that lead us to believe. He was a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. So probably, repent and come into the ark. That's not in the Bible. The ark is not built for all the people. There's only room for Noah and his family and the animals. He's not pleading with people to get in the ark. That's not in there. And that, that's a, it's just not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, did you know in the account that we're about to read, Noah never speaks. Noah never says a word in the entire account. And the reason is because it's not a story about Noah. It's a story about God. And when we put a man at the center and the focus we miss the point of the story and we look really silly critiquing the world for their take on Noah when I don't get it myself. Listen to this quote by a scholar named Walton and what he writes about this passage. He says, we can all learn from Noah's refusal to conform to his world, absolutely. But in the end, we are not supposed to be impressed with Noah, but with God. The text is in fact oddly silent about Noah on a number of serious counts. More to the point, Noah is silent. He never speaks through the whole flood account. He has no response to God's announcement, no questions about the ark or the animals, no plea on behalf of anyone else, no cries for mercy, no burst of joyful gratitude at the prospect of being saved, no grief for a world destroyed, no impatience in the ark, no prayers of thanksgiving accompanying sacrifice. The narrator leaves Noah a flat character. The only personality he has is found in the characteristics attributed to him by God. The text could not be clearer that Noah is a bit player and that the star of the account is God. Whatever we might learn from Noah is totally eclipsed by what we learn about God. So, that, so what is it that the text teaches about God? He asks. Well, that's what we want to look at today. We want to look at the account. What do we learn? Because there are things to emulate in Noah's life, to be sure. 
but what do we learn primarily about God? So we're going to cover two chapters, and I'm going to read the sections uh, a section at a time because it's a lot. So we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 9. We're going to read verses 9 through 12. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So the first thing we learn in this is this is the setting for the flood, the setting. The first thing we learn is uh, that Noah is in sharp contrast to the culture around him. And we've already seen that in what Rob preached last week. The verses before, if you look up at verse 5 from last week, same chapter, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is as bad as it gets. No matter how bad we think our world is, it does not compare to Noah's day. Because everyone there, it says that every intention of thoughts uh, only evil continually. All thoughts, all the time, continually evil. That's the culture around him. And uh, yet Noah is distinct because he's a righteous man. Now, why is Noah a righteous man? Verse 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Well, it's, it's good that verse 8 comes before verse 9 because verse 8 tells us Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why is Noah righteous? Because God had favor on him. That's always the case in the Bible. Here's another place. This is a dangerous place where we can, a lot of the things I'm telling you don't really matter. So you tell the story with his son's building it. That probably happened. So he warned people and told them the, of the flood, and that, that probably happened, uh, even though it's not going to say that in this text. That, that probably all happened. But here's a place where if we miss this, we miss the whole thing. If we think that, that, uh, that Noah is saved because he is good and everybody is bad, then the story is this. God saves good people, and it's by our goodness that we're saved. And that's the most anti-gospel story imaginable. So we definitely don't want to go there. And the Bible is clear here. He is a righteous man. He is a godly guy. Um, but he is because God found favor on him in verse 8. What really, his righteousness comes from God because God is favorable to him and because he trusts God by faith. It's by faith that God touches, Ab uh, touches Noah, that Noah uh, receives from God by faith, that Noah acts by faith. It's his faith that he's commended for in the New Testament. So here's a verse from Hebrews. Hebrews 11, I think we're going to read every verse about Noah in the New Testament today, but this is Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning the events, concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir, heir is something you receive, an inheritance, became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So where is Noah's righteousness? He receives, he is an heir, he receives it by faith, the same way you and I do. We have our sins forgiven by trusting Jesus and receiving what he did by faith, and we're declared righteous by faith. So nobody is good enough that God looks down and saves them. God doesn't look down and say, you're better than everybody else, I'm saving you. Now Noah probably was actually, by God's grace, better than everyone else, because it says that he is blameless in his generation. So compared to others, he is uh, he is blameless. He is the only one crying out to God. He is the only one that has received uh, what God has done, uh, what he has warned him of in God's saving power. He, he believes by faith in the saving power of God. God saves and he, he believes that. 
God has favor on him. He walks with him, he says. Um, he, is, he is different than his generation. Uh, his generation is corrupt. We learn that his generation is, verse 11, filled with violence. Verse 12, uh, the earth was corrupted for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So it's total corruption societally and total violence societally. This sounds like anarchy. It sounds like things are out of control. Whoever's the strongest just rules over everybody else. So there's killing, there's harming. Uh, it, it's a terrible word, world to live in. And now God will have to step in, chooses to step in and wipe out his creation. And one of the things that's so grievous about this passage, there is joy in this passage because God is saving, but there's grief in this passage as well because God is judging. And one of the things we learn from the passage is that this is the reversal of creation. Look at verse 12. Um, verse 12. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. It was corrupt. Go back in chapter 1, this is what we read in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. In chapter 1, God sees, and it's very good. In chapter 6, God sees, and everything is corrupt and violent. This is grievous. What Adam and Eve did was grievous because they rebelled against God, but now everyone alive is in rebellion. All of society, all the people are in rebellion against God. It is, it's a heavy, heavy passage when you think about that reality. Next, we have the preparation. So we have this, there's the setting for the flood. Next, we have the preparation. I'm going to read verse 13 to the end of the chapter. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to, uh, shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. So God says he's going to bring judgment on the earth. Verse 13 says, behold, I will destroy them. He will, all the people that are violent, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, make yourself an ark. Because of the sin and the rebellion and the complete disregard for God, I'm going to judge, I'm going to destroy all that I've made. 
but you build an ark. I'm going to rescue. I'm going to sustain you. There's God's hand of mercy even in his judgment. Even in his judgment, he will preserve a people for himself to glorify him. He will preserve a line because there's coming the seed of the woman to defeat the serpent. If you remember chapter 3, there's a promise that someone's going to come and defeat the devil, to defeat the power of death, reverse the curse. That one's coming, and he's going to come, obviously, through Noah's line, through Noah's generations, for Noah is going to be saved and sustained. Again, I just was really struck. I, didn't, I never realized this till this week, that in the account we're reading, the flood account, uh, Noah doesn't speak. It's all God. It's all God giving instruction. It's all God directing. It's all God saying what's going to happen. It's all, all God explaining his judgment. It's all God acting. He's the actor on center stage. He gives very specific instructions about uh, this ark, doesn't he? He tells him specifically how he is to build it because God specifically describes and prescribes the means of salvation. He doesn't just warn Noah. He doesn't say, hey, Noah, a big flood's coming. Figure out a way to rescue yourself. He doesn't leave Noah to figure out how to save himself, and he doesn't do that for you and me either. We don't come up with our plan of salvation, our plan of betterment, our way to be a better person, our way to be a, a better Christian, our way to whatever. We're dependent upon God, aren't we? And he gives us uh, the instruction of how he will save. And he says, there are many pathways that people think lead to salvation, but there's only one that's true, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So you can construct any way, be a better person, uh, some other philosophy, some other gods. You can construct whatever way you want to think that it's going to lead to salvation. But Jesus says, there's one way, and it's through me. And God says, there's one way to be saved here, and it's to be in the boat when the rains start. One way, God describes it. He makes an ark, which is a boat. He said he's to make it out of gopher wood. That's an unknown tree. Gopher is just, they take the Hebrew letters and kind of transliterate it. Uh, so we don't know what that tree is, but some kind of tree uh, he's to build it out of. He's to cover it with pitch, which is something that waterproofs the ark. Uh, he's to build rooms in it. He says there's going to be rooms in this uh, for the animals. Uh, and he gives him precise dimensions of the ark. It's, it's going to be 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. A, thir a cubit is most likely, there's a little bit of debate, but most likely a cubit's about 18 inches. So this boat is 450 feet long, 75 uh, feet uh, rather wide, 45 feet high. So the length of it is a football field and a half, 450 feet. It's massive, a massive structure that would have entailed years, decades perhaps, for him to build. It would have taken years to build this boat. So this was an act of great faith. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to play Noah down. I'm just trying to say he's not very central in the story. But, but he had to build the boat. That is a tremendous act of faith to spend that kind of time, however he did it, building that size structure. That was trusting the Lord. Here's something else that's trusting the Lord. There's no description about building a rudder or about building any navigational tools or aids to the ark. Now, maybe God told him that, and didn't, we don't have it in the Bible. I don't know. But, but there's nothing explicit. We've got the exact size. It's to be three levels. You're going to make it with this wood, and, but no rudder or anything. Probably what's implied here is that they're at God's mercy. Get in the boat, and I will take care of you. 
no, you're not even going to steer the thing. I will take care of you, and I will bring you safely to a place of landing. So at least we don't get anything explicit about how the boat was steered. Presumably, it was steered by God. And then God establishes a covenant with Noah. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your family. He lists his family there. Uh, This is the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible. Covenant is a big, big Bible word, and this is the first time that it is used. One commentator, Bruce Walkie, defines covenant this way. A covenant solemnizes and confirms a social relationship already in existence. It makes a solemn affirmation like an agreement for a relationship that already exists. So they already have a relationship. Back at verse 8 of chapter 6, we see that he says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God's already found favor. He's found favor with God. Noah has. There's already a relationship there. He's already walking with God. God favors him. And then chapter 6, verse 1, he walks with God. God favors him, he walks with God. They already have a relationship together. But now there's an agreement by God. He's making a commitment to Noah. One, one writer said, a, co- a covenant is a promise of God to people with whom he is dealing in a special way. A covenant is a promise of God to people that he is dealing with in a special way. So we're under what's called the new covenant. That is God relating to us through Jesus Christ and forgiving our sins, making us his people, sustaining us eternally. That is God's commitment, God's covenant. He will uphold that. If we are faithless, he is faithful. Uh, If we are weak, he is strong. If we sin, he is holy and by grace forgives us and sustains us. It's amazing. So he makes this commitment to Noah uh, that he will ultimately rescue him and save him from judgment. That's what it is. It's a saving from judgment. And then in chapter 7, well, the last verse, verse 22, we see Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him, verse 22, all God commanded him. So Noah's obedient to God. He does what the Lord tells him to, and he is prepared. Chapter 7, and we'll finish with chapter 7. We'll look at 8 next week. Chapter 7 is the actual account of the flood. Then the Lord said to Noah, again, God speaking, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock, according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature. 
they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Boy, it's just repeated multiple times there, isn't it? He blotted them out. Everything died very, very clear. For 40 days there was rain, and then there was, the rain prevailed for 150 days. We get a, a detailed account of God's saving. We don't get a detailed account of the death. He doesn't describe in great detail the death of the people who were living or anything of the sort. We just are told repeatedly that they die. But we do get detail of what happened in his saving. Uh, Noah. Um, it, uh, it, he says he calls them in verse 2 that uh, part of the saving is get the animals and get them into the boat, uh, or they were drawn into the boat by the Lord. Uh, take with you seven pairs of clean animals in verse 2, uh, seven pairs of birds. Is this a contradiction? In chapter 6, he said, take a pair. Now he's saying for these certain clean animals, take seven pairs. Is there some contradiction? No, there's not a contradiction. We're getting more data here because these animals will be used for sacrifice. So when they land, there will be sacrifice offered. And so there's more animals. If you took a pair and you get there and you sacrifice them, then they're extinct. So that's not what he did. He brought extra ones that will be sacrificed once they land. So it's not a contradiction. It's just a filling out of the detail, which we'll see next week what happens. Uh, after every b uh, creature boarded, we get this fantastic detail in verse 16, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord said, put a door on the side. They all enter, and the Lord shuts them and seals them in safety. God prepares them, and God saves them, and he really does the same thing for us. He shuts us in. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're united to Jesus. You're sealed by the Spirit, which is the mark of the Lord on you, and you are in Christ. That's what the Bible says, in Christ. He puts us in himself. No one can take us out. We are protected from the judgment and condemnation that comes upon sin and sinners like us. We're protected in Christ. So the same is true for us. He shuts us in himself. He preserves them from the corrupting anarchy that's all around them. They're preserved from that. He preserves them from the rains that are so high that even the mountains are covered and they're up above the mountains. And really, in what I think, I mean, it'd be hard to argue that Genesis 3, they took an 8, is not the saddest verse in the Bible so far. But if that's not it, this is the saddest verse in the Bible. Verse 22, er, so far. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every, verse 23, living thing that was on the face of the ground. God created 
man and woman, Adam and Eve, to live for his glory in sweet communion. And now we see the devastating effects of sin as it's passed on and like a snowball going down a hill, just gets worse and worse generation to generation until finally we say everybody on the planet is killing each other and corrupt and violent and angry and murderous, just violent is the word. Uh, and so it's, it's absolute pandemonium. It's sinful chaos. Everyone is just driven by their passions and their desires and not the Lord. That's where it ends up. And God brings an end to that and preserves this one family. Only Noah is left. And so God is providing a line that he will bring a savior. So that's the account. Now we're going to look next week at when this, what happens after the flood, the waters come down, they subside, and what all happens. God makes another promise, and we'll read that uh, next week. But what do we learn from this sobering count, account? Well, I think we learn a lot of things. One of the best ways to interpret the scripture in the Old Testament one of the best ways is to look at how the New Testament interprets it. Because if the New Testament writers interpret it, it's flawless. If I tell you, oh, this is kind of what I think, take that with a grain of salt and weigh it against Scripture. But if I can tell you this is what Jesus said or this is what Peter said, then you're like, okay, that's a fair interpretation. So here's a few things that the New Testament, and we, by the time we're done, we will have looked at all, I think, all the passages on Noah, except we're going to look at one in Matthew. It's also in Luke, but it's the same, the same account, same story. So we'll look at them all. So here's the first one. It's a warning to be ready. It's a warning to be ready that judgment comes, judgment is coming, and it's a warning to be ready. Well, uh, man, this sounds kind of, a few minutes ago we were at Archie, Archie. I mean, this sounds really heavy. But this is how the New Testament deals with the story of Noah. Look at this verse, these verses from Matthew 24. This is verses 36 through 39, and then I'm going to include verse 44 as well. Um, this is Jesus speaking. But concerning the day, he's talking about his return. But concerning the, the day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So when Jesus looks at the story of Noah, this is what he says. I'm going to return, Jesus says, and it's going to be just like the days of Noah. Everybody is going about their business. Perhaps many of them were mocking Noah. I'm not saying that didn't happen. Um, but they are just not interested in God. They're living their own lives. They're going through their stuff. They're getting married. They're working their job. They're sinning like crazy is what we found out about that culture. And then all of a sudden the flood came and they weren't prepared for it. I mean, Jesus said they weren't aware of it. They weren't prepared for it and it cost them their lives because of the suddenness of the rainstorm. Jesus says, in the same way, I will return. I will return. And so the implication is live with an awareness of the returning of Jesus Christ. He could return today. He could return a thousand years from now. We don't know. But, but we are to live as, in essence, like Noah did, by faith. We're to live under the favor of God, walking with God, obeying God, uh, walking in the salvation of God, 
uh, serving God. We're to walk that way in contrast to our prevailing culture. We're to love our prevailing culture. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are not to be isolated. We are not to be <clears throat> cloistered off from the world. We are to be in the world, but in the world excuse me, we're to be not of the world. We're to be different, distinctly different by God. And one of the reasons is because Christ is returning and we want to be living for him. We want to live a life that stewards well his gifts, that manages well what he's given us, that serves him with our life. Second Peter 3 says that because Jesus is returning, because of that, we ought to live holy and godly lives because Jesus is returning. Now, for the Christian, we don't fear that he would return and we would be judged and go to hell. We, we're not fearing, we're not concerned, we're not living like, can I be good enough to go to heaven? That's not what I'm saying. We live secure that we're in relationship with him, secure that we will be with him, but we are to live for him, anticipating his coming. And if you can just imagine, I just picture that, can you just be imagining going about your life and then all of a sudden it starts raining? Rain is just sudden. There's a cloud and then boom, and it just keeps raining, and it just gets higher and higher and higher. Ultimately, you drown. But it just comes, and that's the way Jesus is going to come. He's just going to return, and after that, the judgment, and then eternal life. He's just going to return. He's warned us. He's told us, but oftentimes, we don't live with an awareness of that, and I just was very burdened reading over this today, thinking about this. I was just very burdened for young people in particular in our church. I mean, it should be a burden for myself, but for all of us as Christians, but especially young people. I, I wanna just, from my heart, plead with you to take this to heart. Judgment is very serious. It is righteous. God is righteous, and he must judge sin. And, and Jesus is returning. And I don't know when he's returning, but he makes it clear, live as if it's today. His point is, live as if he's coming today. And so we don't know what kind of time we have. Nobody in the room knows what time they have. Because even if he doesn't come, we could die. Nobody knows the time they have. And if you're a young person and you've grown up in the privilege of the church, do not be presumptuous. That means is do not take that for granted. Do not act like you have forever because you're young and healthy. Do not act like I can get around that to tomorrow. When Jesus says, remember the story, again, he's not doing twosie-woosies or whatever. When Jesus remembers the story, he's saying, this is a warning that I'm returning. So you read the story of Noah and you know a righteous God pours out judgment on unbelievers and rescues the believer, but it is catastrophic. So today, evaluate, do I know Jesus? If Jesus came back today, if I died today, am I prepared? to stand before the Lord and give an account for my life. The Noah story should be a warning to us that Jesus is returning and that we are to be ready for that. Now, if we're a Christian, I'm not trying to introduce some kind of panic and fear and legalism, a motivation to go do a bunch of good stuff because you're okay. No, Jesus did the good stuff. Jesus obeyed for the Lord, but obeyed in our place. Jesus died in our place, and he had favor on us and saved us. That is to motivate us to say, I want to live for you, Jesus. How can I invest my life? My life is short, so how can I make it count? How can I give myself to the stuff that really matters? How can I build for eternity? How can I invest in eternity? How can I give myself to the stuff that's on Christ's heart? 
How can I not squander and waste my life, but use it because life is short and he's returning? And by the way, do I know him? That's the message to all of us. But if you're young here today, do you know him? I'm not asking, do you go to church? I'm not asking, were you raised with family Bible studies and you know the Bible? I'm not asking, do you know the songs? I'm not asking, do you know the behavior? Do you know how you're supposed to act here and how you can get away acting when your parents aren't around and you're with someone else? I'm not asking, do you know the rules? I'm not asking, do you know the church culture or this particular church culture so that you can just sort of skate by and look like you're okay? I'm not asking any of that. I'm not asking, do your parents know the Lord? I'm not asking, does your youth pastor know the Lord, your Sunday school teacher? I'm not asking any of that. I'm asking, when you stand before the Lord and you give an account for your life before a holy God, have you trusted personally in Jesus? Have you turned from your sins and believed in Jesus alone for salvation so that you receive eternal life, so that you experience his spirit even now, so that you have a reason to live for your life, so that you're you're living for him, you know him, you're not just squandering your life, you're not just living and chasing the world and trying to hide that and live a double life. Do you know him? Because Jesus says when you read the Noah story, here's what I want you to think about. I'm returning and are you ready? That's Jesus, not me. And so I'm burdened for any church kid that would be playing church games and knowing the rules but not really knowing Jesus. So this story, so turn to him today. He offers forgiveness. He offers new life. Turn from your sin. Come and be real and honest. Come into the light and trust Jesus today. And if you're an adult as well. It's also a warning of coming judgment, which is kind of what I've said. Next week, we'll see that God promises never to destroy the creation again. However, there will be a final time when all is sort of done away with and reconstituted. So the earth and heavens, everything we know is done away with, and then a new heavens and a new earth is created. That's what the Bible teaches us will happen in the future. So God judged the world in Noah's day, and he will judge all evil on a future day. All evil. Second Peter uh, 2, and Peter talks several places about Noah. It's interesting. But Second Peter 2, verses 4 through 5, and then I'm going to skip and read verses 9 through 10 as well. It says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and that's where I think we get that he told everybody to come into the boat. He, was a pre- he preached righteousness, so we do know he proclaimed truth. With seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust, lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the problem in Peter is there's these false teachers, and so what he's telling them is that, look, God brings judgment to people who are evil and try to, and these people are harm, harming the church. They were false teachers. God brings judgment. So the Lord knows how to preserve his people and he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So he's saying the people that don't know the Lord, they're under the judgment of God. They can turn and believe in Jesus, but if they don't, there's coming a day of judgment. That's what he says, the day of judgment. So it's a warning of the coming of Christ. Peter says it's a warning of the day of judgment where those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority will be judged by God because they have resisted and rejected God and his truth and have chosen to live another way. So he, he compares that. He does a lot of Old Testament people in that passage, but he compares it to Noah. God preserved Noah. So be encouraged because God will preserve you from all the trials of this life. You'll be sealed in the boat. 
God's going to take you through and you will be preserved. So it's a warning against, uh, it's a warning about the return of Christ. It's a warning of the coming judgment. So let's wake up and be aware of those things. Let's wake up and be aware of my neighbor and my coworker and my family member that doesn't know Jesus as well. And thirdly, it's a promise of salvation. It's a promise of salvation for the believer. This is how he deals with it in 1 Peter. So 1 Peter 3, and now we conclude the Noah in the New Testament passages, I think. 1 Peter 3, he says this, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So he compares uh, the ark to the work of Jesus baptism corresponding to this. Now, he's not saying that we're saved by the waters of baptism. Matter of fact, he says it's not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. So he said you're saved by an appeal to God through a good conscience. You're trusting Jesus to cleanse you. It's the believing in God that he cleanses us. That's what saves us. But baptism corresponds or baptism represents the ark is what he's saying. Now, we've done a lot of baptisms, and actually there's a baptistry being constructed like right back there on the stage. So we'll do some baptisms before we get over to um, Frisco Square. And if you got baptized in the blow-up tub, it still counts. This will be a cooler baptistry, but yours is still good before the Lord. Uh, so, um, but he's saying that that's like the ark, that you go under, that, that the ark floats in the waters of God's judgment and you're saved. And he says in baptism, you're identified with Christ, and you're with him, and so you're under the waters of God's judgment, but you're brought back to life in Jesus. You're saved by his resurrection. He comes back to life. It's a great picture. So he says, when we read the story of Noah uh, and what happened there, we should be thinking, I cannot believe God has saved me. This is wonderful. He has preserved me. He has protected me. So now is the point in the story where it is appropriate, after all of the darkness of the story, to consider this part and say, rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. The chorus is great in that song, and actually the verses are okay. They just don't tell the whole story. But we are to rise and shine and give God the glory, glory, with hand motions and everything from the song because he has saved us. He has protected us. He, just like Noah, he has had favor on us. And so you've got to believe if you're in that boat and you're seeing the water go up and the boat is coming up and you're seeing all around you, you're seeing, <clears throat> pardon the graphic nature, but perhaps dead animals and dead bodies just floating by. You're seeing the terrifying, destructive awe-inspiring nature of judgment, and you're in a boat, and you're protected, and you're sealed in with pitch in your gopher wood boat, and you're saved, you've got to be saying, why me? Why am I preserved? And if you think that's amazing, being saved eternally in Christ is far greater. Jesus is the perfect, the much greater Adam. Salvation in Christ is the much greater salvation than salvation in a boat. So when we read the story, we are to say the coming judgment is worse than that first judgment, and the coming judgment is worse than I could imagine, but the coming salvation is far greater than I could imagine. 
and my salvation today is far greater than I can imagine because I am with Jesus. He is righteous. He walked with God. He obeyed in my place. He died for my sins. And now when I'm in him, I am buried with him and raised to walk in new life. And I am sealed in a, the protective care of God in Christ. There is a celebration in the news of the story that God is merciful. God brings just judgment. And I can't answer all the questions about that. I don't know. There's a lot of questions about that. Why then and why those people? I don't know. But I know it was just and it was fair and nobody, no one received what they didn't deserve. The only person that received what he didn't deserve in the story is Noah and his family because he's a sinner too. And he's not, he's not the ultimate hero. I mean, this is great that he built the boat. Two chapters later, he's going to be drunk and naked in his tent. Okay, so just so we know what's coming, the hero's about to get wasted, and, uh, and we're going to find out he's human. It was God who did the saving. It was God that did the preserving. It was God that showed the mercy. And it's Noah who responds to the Lord but had to have been saying, why me? How can this be? And that's the way the Lord wants us to respond. Lord, I cannot believe that you have saved me from the coming judgment. I cannot believe that you're preserving me. I cannot believe that you've given me faith, that you've opened my eyes to Jesus, that you've given me a heart for you, that I want to know your word. In all of my mess, and all of my sins, in all my unfaithfulness, you are still faithful to me. We want to celebrate. So if you're here today as a believer and you're, you're confident of that because of Christ, then it is sobering, but it's, a cel- it's celebratory as well. Lord, thank you for rescue. If you're here not, and you're not a believer, even if you've been in church a lot of years, even if you're a church kid, even if everybody thinks you're good on the outside, we don't really know what's going on on the inside or what you're doing when we can't see you, that kind of a deal, the double life thing. If you're living in that way, then you read this, you should be absolutely sobered. If we're not a believer and we read this, we should be sobered. We should be struck to the core. We should be frightened at the coming judgment of the holiness of God. But we should also hear Jesus' invitation. Anyone who comes to me, I'll never cast you out. We should be sobered and we should run to Jesus because he will welcome you. He will receive you. If you turn, repent from your sin, and believe in him, he will receive you. He will love you. He will welcome you. He will hold you for all eternity, and he will protect you, not from rain, but from the eternal condemnation of God in hell. He will receive you. So be sobered, but run to Jesus and be overjoyed by the grace of God. Don't walk out of here today just as if, hey, I'm just going about my life. That's the people of Noah's day. And Jesus comes unexpected like that, or we die like that, and then the judgment. So it's a sobering passage with eternal implications. And I just pray, we're going to close our prayer. Let's just pray that the Lord would, would lead those of us that need to come to him, that we would respond to him. And those of us who are saved, may we be sobered by the judgment of God, but may we celebrate the kindness of God to protect us and, in essence, place us in his ark. That is the saving power of Jesus. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.